Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. When we talk about <laughs> connections between duties, right? You could have one action that you feel that you ought to do in a particular situation, and it might be motivated by multiple duties. So he has an example here of Socrates and the Credo, which if you haven't read, is worth, worth reading. And in the Credo, Socrates says, I have an obligation to obey the, the laws of my city. Why? There's multiple reasons. So first off, he says there's a duty of gratitude. I've been able to live in this political community for a, a long time. I've done well in it, it's taken care of me, it's made a civilized life possible for me. So therefore, out of gratitude, I ought to do the only thing I can really do, you know, other than like trying to erect statues or something like that. Socrates didn't have a lot of money. I can obey the laws. I can actually do what, what I'm supposed to do as a citizen. Also, there is a prima facie duty of fidelity. This is the argument that he makes. He says, by choosing to stay in Athens when I could have gone to other places, I made an implicit promise that I would obey the laws. By staying there and accepting the, the protection and the hospitality of the laws, I've put myself under an obligation to actually obey them. And then finally, he, it could be argued that there's also a, a, a duty of beneficence. Maybe the laws are actually potent instruments for the common good, for helping other people. There might be a duty of malfeasance there too, right? If I break the laws, maybe I'm screwing somebody else over, I'm damaging their property, their, their person, their opportunities, right? So there could be other duties there as well. Maybe reparation, if I've already broken the laws, now I have an even stronger obligation once I've paid my, my penalty to actually follow the laws. He's got another example of being in an economic or social system that's been historically unjust in which we've participated in. Maybe there is a duty of, of justice, which is to distribute things equally. So, you know, are there, are there still people in our society who are kind of screwed over because of who they are? Let's think, uh, for example, about, about education, right? K through 12 education. Are all high schools and middle schools and elementary schools equal? Why not? And I'm not asking about the root causes at this point. Just how are they not equal at this point? Well, teachers. That's a big one. I mean, some teachers, you go in there and you're like, man, these people should not be teaching. Or they get burned out. My Aunt Mary was a Chicago public school teacher for 35 years. And she still teaches part-time. Some of the stuff that goes on in the, in the CPS, just amazing. Would not fly anywhere else. Classrooms just packed full of kids. Teachers are not able to discipline them because they're not allowed to at all. So you can imagine what education is like in a, in a situation like that. Not a lot of it going on. And they're always playing catch-up. What else? What else makes a good school or a bad school? Resources. That's massive. Yeah. Um, you, have, you actually have a band room. Here's another example from, from uh, again, from my Aunt Mary's head. She taught several classes in a locker room. Academic classes, not gym classes, academic classes, because they were out of space. And she wasn't just teaching in one of the trailers out in the parking lot. Imagine having to go to school in a trailer. I lived in a trailer for a while. I didn't like that. 
I can't imagine packing 25 kids into a trailer to, to learn something. Not only did she teach in a, in a locker room, she shared that locker room with three other or two other teachers. So there could be two classes going on at the same time in a gym locker room with just a partition. Now imagine trying to learn something in a, in a situation like that, right? Do you actually have classrooms? Do you have the resources to allow children to experiment, to enrich their lives with music, art, drama? What else do we tend to cut here in the States? Gym programs, unfortunately. That's why all these kids are a little bit overweight, right? Shouldn't cut gym classes. That's a no-brainer right there. Opportunities for field trips. That's probably a, you know enough. Now, why are schools like that? What's the cause? How did it end up like that? You guys know what the main source of funding for schools tends to be? Federal government kicks in some money. State government kicks in some money sometimes. What's the biggest thing? Yeah, like your home, uh, the taxes. Yeah, property taxes. And the homeowners in a given area are taxed on the, the values of their home, or whatever they happen to be assessed at. This is a constant source of aggravation for, for people. This is local politics. But that money goes to fund the schools. And schools that are doing particularly well, it's, it's fairly easy to make a case why the property taxes should be up there. Schools that are doing quite poorly, nobody wants to contribute to them. And so you get a situation where it's a cycle, right? Another thing that, that also fits in there, alumni donations. You know, if you're a school that tends to prepare its students very well, your, your students tend to do quite well once they get out, and then they tend to be willing to put in money into the system, right? Whereas if you're a school that's underperforming, one of the places that I taught at, four-year graduation rate, 9%. 9% of the students who, who came in actually graduated after four years. 30% graduated after six years. If you don't graduate after six years, you're probably not going to graduate. Now, that school didn't have a lot of alumni donations. You know why? Because the alumni don't tend to do too well. And if they do, it's probably not so much from the school itself. It's from other stuff that they did. Now, if you're in a situation like that, what sort of duties would, would apply for, for us as citizens? Maybe a prima facie duty of justice. Maybe we look at that and we say, hey, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not these kids' fault. They are growing up in the wrong neighborhood. Why should they be screwed because of that? Why should these kids get all these advantages because they happen to be in the right neighborhood? That's a sense of justice, right? Perhaps there's also a duty of reparation. We ought to make these things right because plenty of other people have been screwed for a long time. And that's contributed to the, the kids who are, are doing poorly right now. By the way, I'm not politically a liberal. But I, I understand the argument behind that sort of thing. I can find myself very sympathetic with, with that sort of notion. Because I've seen how kids do when they have a, a bad educational foundation. It's really doing harm to them. What other possible connections could there be? Sometimes duties give rise to other duties. So if you fail in certain duties, like you give somebody an unfair allotment, then the duty of reparation could come up, right? Or if you make a promise to somebody, and you break your promise, don't you have to make it right afterwards? It's not just fulfilling what you ought to have done. Maybe you should put something else on top of that to make up for it. Does that sound like something you can relate to pretty easily? Non-malfeasance, if you, if you harm somebody, you ought to do something to fix it for them, right? Again, you knock somebody's fence down, maybe you fix their fence, right? Or uh, you damage your roommate's 
furniture, maybe refinish it, right? What else? There, there's another <laughs> possible example, justice and benevolence. If you have a duty of justice, then you know, you're supposed to give everybody fair allotments of things. Does that create another duty in return to keep on doing that? Uh, duty of fidelity. Ross, I think, would probably say yes. Think about the, this notion of paying it forward. What, do, what does that mean? You guys heard that expression before? What does that mean? Yeah. So it's something good is done to you, like you're obligated to do something good for someone else. Yeah, not for the person who did it for you originally, right? Yeah. That's that's the whole idea behind it is I help you out and, and there's I mean you could do something nice for me and then you would like the well, circuit would be complete. But it's better if you keep the, the good acts flowing. And sometimes somebody will say, Hey, what can I do for you in return? And say, just pay it forward. Just keep it keep it going. So you could think about this in terms of the duty of gratitude. Right? So you feel gratitude, and that could give rise to two other duties. One would be beneficent, right? I find that you're struggling in a, in a particular class, so I, I give you a book that I found useful for myself when I was a student struggling with that same class. And what do you do with that book? You're going to give the book back to me and say, nah, keep the book, pay it forward, right? What do you do? You give that book to somebody else that you see struggling with. You're doing an act of beneficence. <laughs> a duty of gratitude gives rise to a duty of beneficence in that case. Do you see how these come together? Another way in which this could take place, though, could also create duties of self-improvement. You might actually have a duty to tell a lie. Yes, a white lie, let's say, because of person. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. A surprise party, right? Or, or a present that, you know, it takes a little while to coordinate. Maybe it's a trip to somewhere and uh, you got to get certain information from the person. You don't tell them what the information is for. And when they press you on it, you tell them it's about something else. I'm signing up for some magazines, something like that, right? When really you're, you're going to do something really nice for them. So that would be uh, beneficence. Beneficence and fidelity could conflict with each other. What guidance does Ross give you for this? He says, when I'm in a situation in which more than one of these prima facie duties is incumbent upon me, what I have to do is study the situation as fully as I can. Actually, pay attention to what's in the situation. Look at it carefully. Don't try to just solve it to get it out of the way immediately. That's our, our tendency, isn't it? When we have a conflict, we want to get rid of the conflict right away. So to actually look at the situation and see if there really is a conflict there. And then he says, until I form the considered opinion, and, and we can never have more than that, we could be wrong about this stuff, that in the circumstances, one of these duties is more incumbent than any other. That's the duty that I should go with them. And so he offers a couple ways of thinking about this in terms of what he calls stringency, right? Ross stresses early on that there's one duty that takes priority over all the others in most circumstances, not malfeasance, not to do harm. Right? So if keeping a promise would result in harm to another person, then you should you know, reconsider keeping that promise. This has a greater stringency not only over beneficence, but over all the other ones. We can go a little bit further down. So, so we've got the most stringent non-malfeasance. And then we've got duties, like he says, we don't have hard and fast rules that apply in every case, but some of our duties seem to be more stringent than others. 
What are these more perfect obligations? Well, fidelity. If breaking a promise can actually provide some benefit to somebody else, I still should keep the promise. I can pass up the opportunity of helping somebody else because the promise is, is important. Reparation. You know, if I, if I have to choose, here would be a great example. I do something that really ticked my wife off. And I'm thinking, you know, I could, I could go buy her flowers, but I could also go down to the bar and buy, buy a round of drinks. Now, buying a round of drinks is going to make people happy, right? Everybody <laughs> likes getting, getting free stuff. Uh, and that would be beneficent, and I could say, I'm fulfilling a duty. But let's say I only have a certain amount of money in my wallet, and I can either buy the drinks or I can buy the flowers. If I go home and I tell her, yeah, I was going to buy you flowers, but I didn't because I bought a round of drinks for the guys down at the bar instead. How do you think that would fly? Did that go over well? Probably not, right? For good reason. And then finally, gratitude. That is, is more stringent than other ones as well. The other thing, the other rule that he has is you should try to produce as much good as possible. All other things being, try to produce as much good as possible. Not if it means you got to break all sorts of promises or never, you know, make up for harm that you've done. But in general, when you've got the chance, try to try to do good both for other people and for yourself because you are worth just as much as anybody else. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.